This is Through the Rabbit Hole. I'm your host, Aaron Mendes, tech entrepreneur, investor, and CEO of Privacy Hawk. In this podcast, we do go down many rabbit holes with super interesting guests, and we talk about all different kinds of topics with our goal to entertain, educate, and provoke thought. We hope you enjoy this episode. Okay. Hey, everyone. It's Aaron Mendes here with our new podcast, Through the Rabbit Hole, where we talk about various interesting topics around science and technology. Uh, I have uh, a great friend here, Steve Biafor, who's he's going to be very humble, but in my opinion, he's one of the smartest people I know. And uh, he's an OG in the artificial intelligence space, uh, I think all the way back into the 80s and 90s, doing AI and neural networks before they were even called that. Um, so welcome, Steve. Glad to have you. Thank you, Aaron. So, uh, Steve, could you give us a little bit of your background? Uh, you know, what? How did you get started in AI, and what were you doing back in the eighties? <laughs> yeah, good point. Well, I was still in school in the eighties, but when I got out of there, um, uh, started off. Um, actually, I was on a trajectory to go to med school, and I came to San Diego, took a job at General Dynamics, a defense contractor, and I thought I'd spend a year. Uh, making money and maybe volunteer at a hospital, which I did. And turned out I didn't really want to do healthcare. So I knocked on the door over at UCSD to see if I could get in a program there. And turned out that period of time was just a real hotbed for neural nets, AI research over there. And that's kind of how I got into it. Kind of, like you said, through the rabbit hole. Um, so how could they even do a neural net back then? They had like less than one meg of RAM on the computers back then. So, so after I left General Dynamics, I went and joined a company called HNC, uh, which was building at first hardware that you would stuff into a desktop computer, you know, PC that would sort of turn it into a neuro computer. It would do matrix math really quickly. This would have been... I guess, the very beginnings of things like GPUs way, way wow. back. And that's how we did it. We we basically stuck another board into desktop computers and and did it that way. And believe me, the models we were training were tiny little things compared to today. A lot of the ideas were the same, but the hardware just couldn't do the kinds of things that we can do now. What did you guys call it back then? Did you call it? artificial intelligence or machine learning or what was the terminology you were using oh we did use neural nets and we called it neurocomputing okay. uh, and this board that you stuck into your pc was called a neurocomputer okay um, so you weren't calling it ai or artificial intelligence back then the terms were always used kind of interchangeably uh there was no such thing as big data uh, there was no such thing as deep learning. Those things, those terms didn't exist. Cool. Now, you were involved in creating the one of the first AI-driven fraud detection systems, right? Yeah. So the way this company worked, um, we took on any and all projects looking for ways to um, use the power of neural networks to solve any problem. And one of the problems that came along was a bank had issues with their credit card fraud, and they were hoping maybe we could help them find the patterns. And sure enough, we did. 
And that was something that every bank was interested in, uh, every bank that issues credit cards. And and that you said that that's still being used today? Like they haven't come up with anything better? It is. It's kind of extraordinary. But in that world, well, so is the FICO score. And FICO ended up buying HNC software after HNC IPO'd. Um, we ended up bought by Fair Isaac. And the FICO score is still used, right? Those things are very sticky and hard to uh, unseat once they're in. Right. So the, these these fraud detection algorithms, so you're saying that even though the ways that scammers can commit fraud, it's still like the same, it still ends up creating the same signal regardless of how they got your credentials or how they got into your account or whatever? Well, the interesting thing is, well, the models are being retrained all the time, but things like fraud and, you know, and also in the space of security, right? Um, the individual perpetrators don't have to be that smart, but as a collective sort of intelligence, they'll eventually find the things that work. They'll find the holes, the gaps in the system and exploit them because the ones who can't figure that out are gone. They just can't make a living that way. Um, but the ones who do, sometimes they talk, there's communication and those schemes that work end up dominating. It's a lot like, uh, I guess it's a lot like um, viruses, right? The ones that are successful replicate more. Cool. So uh, fast forward to um, to these days. So we've got all these chat GBT technologies uh, going on. And uh, have you used uh, chat GBT much? Yeah, I mean, we've been um, we've been using these large language models for quite some time. The revolutionary thing uh, that powers the technology I'd say that was probably the discovery of the transformer-based architecture, and that happened in 2017. What and is that? Shortly after we began using those models. So um, building models to understand language isn't new. That's been a you know natural language understanding has been a big area of research for a long time. The old way of doing business there was something called a recurrent neural network. And... All that is, is neural networks are just big stacks of layers of interconnected processing units. Those processing units are very roughly patterned after neurons. And they take signals in, they process them, they spit signals out to the next neuron in the layers of network. And eventually, there's an output. Um, same thing's going on here. but before the transformer architecture, the way of understanding language was to do recurrent connections, which means I would connect one word to the word before it, to the word before that, to the word before that. And you had some limited number of these connections that would go way back in whatever, usually a sentence, right? Um, I'm using the, I'm using word sort of interchangeably with token. Uh, this, this whole business doesn't happen on words, it happens on tokens, but um, roughly, you can think of them as words. And at some point, you just run out of connections. And so anything that happened before that can't be considered by the network. It doesn't know it even exists. 
But the old way of doing it was you would do those connections back in the sentence as far as you could go. And then you would slide that window along and say, well, I'm going to go to the next word and I'm going to, I'm going to try and predict what the word after that is going to be. That's generally what these models do. They predict the next word. And they learn structure by doing that. So there's patterns all over the place in the way language works. Um, and you can exploit those patterns. But the problem with that was you had to do things sequentially. So you would click along a piece of text, right? Could be a, a novel, could be just a couple sentences, but whatever it was, you would click along one word, one token at a time, and you would let the recurrent connections get trained. Transformers said, no, you don't have to do that. We're going to figure out what to pay attention to in a different way. And that different way, it's an architecture that's probably a little too complicated to explain here, but it doesn't have to happen sequentially, which means I can, I can parallelize this whole shebang. And when you're talking about, I don't know, now the latest models are hundreds of layers deep and have um, hundreds of billions of connections, right, to train. Those are... Um, are doable only if you do a, a lot of parallelization in the process. So transformers let that happen. The fact that um, that you can do that has opened up the capability. So you, you can actually at a re in a reasonable amount of time, and it still takes forever, right? I mean, these are models that take quite some time to build, weeks, right? Um, but it's doable, and it was not doable if you had to do it sequentially yeah interesting so OpenAI has released this chat gbt which is all the rage right now and you know people like you have been using large language models for for years um but it does feel like something is is new with this one it's it's its capabilities are much more broad and general and uh, and the ability to provide human-like responses seems to be like a, a major leap forward. Is that do you, do you see it that way too? What you just said, that last part about human-like responses, I think is the key. So, I don't know. One of the first models out that had this transformer architecture was called BERT. I cannot remember what that stands for, um, but. It's, you know, five years old and it was scary good at tearing language apart and anything that has these, this sort of deep learning architecture, layer after layer after layer. So um, there's this sort of a hidden layer in a neural network can build an abstraction, some kind of concept that makes sense to help solve the problem. And Bert would do things that looked an awful lot like the things you would learn in grammar class. Like, hey, that's a verb or that's an active verb. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invent a thing called that, right? And I'm going to have it in my representation of language. And then it would stack things up and it would have sort of higher level concepts throughout. Pretty impressive and a little scary that that was going on. Um, so I think the, the sort of foundation for this really what feels like a breakthrough has been there for a long time. 
and the capability to do things with those models, like, I don't know, reading web pages and figuring out what a company does. Um, those kinds of things have, have been around for a long time. But the chat GPT sort of phenomena, right? The, the hype around it, I think is due to the human-like responses. And why does that exist? Well, there, I mean, there are a couple of things going on. One, one thing for sure that's going on is these are bigger models. And it's not just the size of the model. In fact, I think the current thinking is it's more about the amount of data used to train the model. Hopefully it's good data, right? So there's a lot of effort to try and filter out bad data because when you have to grab it by the terabyte, right, you're going to get a bunch of garbage. Um, but the amount of data used is bigger. The size of the models are bigger. And so there is something to that. But I actually think the biggest part relates to something you don't hear about much, which is the final layer on ChatGPT's model was a, was a reinforcement learning through human feedback. I think they just called it that RLHF layer. And what does that mean? It means I'm going to look at the responses that I could generate. Maybe I'll generate some number of them. And I'm going to use a model that actually had human feedback that said, I looked at these answers, meaning a human looked at them and said, I like that one. <laughs> I don't like that one. And that, I believe, spawned this kind of response that I think you can read it almost as a very confident answer mm -hmm. that's clearly stated. Those score more points. They get more, more thumbs up. And the ones that are maybe hedging a bit or maybe they're even more accurate, right? They get a thumbs down. And so, I don't know, my experience with chat GPT is no matter what you ask it, you're going to get a confident response. It could be true or it could be absolute BS. <laughs> but right. It sounds like the kind of thing that could be right. It seems like it's doing a lot more than language though. Like I've been using it for doing, you know, data analytics, like mm -hmm. giving it a spreadsheet with like 80,000 rows and saying, find me some interesting patterns in this. And, you know, it told me that 10% you know, of our users cancel auto renew within 10 minutes of using the product. And it's like, how did it know to do that? And it's doing calculations and analytics and being creative. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you can just do that from reading a bunch of articles. Like what other stuff did they, and it can write code, mm -hmm. uh, pretty good code. Like how did they do that? So, well, a lot of what is out there online, right, is language in computer language. And computer languages are actually cleaner and easier than any human language. And so it's actually pretty easy pickings. And the tools I've used, uh, the coding tools, and then I've also used, I don't know if we use the same thing, but it was in GPT-4 and it allowed upload a spreadsheet with data in it, ask data science type questions, and it'll actually generate a Python notebook, do the analysis, show you the charts, basically give you a report. Um, it's it's exploiting two things. One, uh, there's just a very sort of common thread of things you do when you're analyzing data. There's not that many different things, right? You're doing, um, you know, 
exploratory data analysis, right? It's just the standard things you would do to understand patterns at a very high level. And two, you're producing Python code to do it. And that those two things, any one of them by themselves are pretty easy. And then you put them together and it's still pretty easy to do. But it feels like there's something going on there that's um, that's interesting and, and new. And I do think a lot of jobs that we thought would take a long time to, I don't know, to change or disrupt. I don't think they're going to be taken over. They're just going to be changed. People who write software for a living have co-pilot looking over their shoulder and now they're writing code faster. Mm -hmm. um, same thing with these data science things that are starting to come out. It just changes what you do. It kind of elevates the work that you do. Um, I don't know. I, my opinion is um, it this sort of excitement over chat GPT is more about us than it is about AI. A lot of what you know, us humans have done at work, messing around in spreadsheet, you know, messing around in spreadsheets, creating reports for, you know, layers of management, uh, summarizing things. A lot of that work that, I don't know, a lot of us probably feel like, man, I wish I didn't have to do that. It's kind of, um, it's kind of repetitive and tedious. That kind of work actually is pretty doable with this kind of technology. And so, um, yeah, I feel like it is going to have an impact because it has reached that point where humans feel pretty good about it. And how we feel about the technology is probably just as important as actually the underlying accuracy of it. If you sat there and measured it really carefully. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I mean, I've, I've been very impressed with the creativity, not just of chat GPT, but like these, um, generative uh image mm -hmm. models like uh, i've been playing around with one called mid journey have you ever played with that i haven't played with mid journey i played with dolly the various versions of it yeah mid journeys i think a step better than dolly but because like dolly can't has trouble making faces and hands it'll mm -hmm. give you like an approximation of a face but it looks like something out of a horror movie yeah usually um, <laughs> But this mid journey is actually makes very elegant uh, stuff and it'll just create an entire background with, with very little guidance. Like you could say like, show me a picture of uh, a dog on a motorcycle in the sky mm -hmm. and it'll do it, but then it'll put other stuff there. It'll put birds and clouds and trees. And, and if you give it something really broad that like doesn't make any sense, then it just makes something up that is just like looks like a Salvador Dali mm -hmm. uh, painting or something. It's just like really, really bizarre, but highly creative stuff that like you're like, wow, you know, I could see some really famous artist having made that. And it was just made by some machine in like 15 seconds. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's really it's really fascinating to me, too, because I think it makes us step back and ask, what is creativity really? What yeah. really counts as that. And, you know, just coming up with something new that is kind of a mashup of things that have been out there, but maybe a new combination is, in my mind, a little less creative than stepping outside the set of building blocks, the Legos, right, that we have to put together 
in, in doing Isn't something. Isn't that everything that we do, though? Like, when someone goes and writes a song, they're building on all the other songs that have been written. And it, it is. It's in their head. And so, again, this is where it feels like the interesting part of this for me is it makes you look at what you do and ask, you know, was I just doing this kind of, you know, complex mashup type kind of thing? Or was there something more to it than that? And I think humans would love to think that we're special. Or, you know, yeah, or are you just a biological AI? <laughs> we're different from all these animals. We're better than them. You know, we're, we're different from computers. We've got these things and those things. And now I think uh, systems like this make you uh, have to ask that question a little bit differently. Yeah, definitely does. So um, transitioning a little bit into uh, the topics of, I guess, cybersecurity and cyberterrorism and things like that, because, you know, our company, Privacy Hawk, is focused on trying to help people protect their personal data because it's very dangerous to be used against us by criminals. I think that artificial intelligence is going to make that a lot faster, more scalable, easier for scammers. So I was, I wanted to kind of hear your perspective on like, you know, looking down the next like five or 10 years, like what kind of terrible things do you think are going to be happening as a result <laughs> of the, this leap forward in artificial intelligence? What the, what, what's coming down? Yeah, that's a, well, that's a scary thought for sure. Um, no doubt there will be some, you know, bad players that have the competence to use the technology and amplify the impact they could have. And so, you know, the first level of that is just what it does for everybody, right? It makes everybody writing code, write code faster. Um, and, and same thing for the bad guys. That's not super scary. It just means their team got bigger, basically. Um, the scary part is if you can get a very, very bad player to try and use the technology to do something that, in general, it, it, they would struggle to get it, a big team to go after. So now the team is just a bunch of AI. And you don't, and you know, yes, there are guardrails on many of these technologies to prevent these things, but you know, busting through those has been kind of like a game for everyone, right? How do you make chat GPT, you know, go off the rails? Pretty easy to do. Um, well, or you could just train your own, like, because BERT's like open source. So you could, you could stand up, you know, your own version of chat GPT that doesn't have the guardrails. That, that's what I, I think, about. I think you're right. There's, there's probably no containing the technology. There'll be an open foundation model that's pretty powerful that anybody can train. And then there'll be some small number of bad players who want to train it to do something really evil. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that's a possibility. Um, I think the answer, like, like you probably think, is it's more in us, right? We have to be resilient to those kinds of things. And we need to use AI to do that uh, as best we can. But preventing a really evil human from using the most powerful tools they can. Well, you know, they want to get a hold of nuclear weapons. They want to get a hold of AI. Same yeah. sort. I mean, I, 
I have to imagine that it's already happening that you've got these, you know, these offshore scam rings and they're probably hiring engineers to set up their own, you know, version of ChatGPT that doesn't have the guardrails. And then what you could do is you could load in a bunch of social media profiles and personal information about millions of people and say, analyze all these people and tell me the one that's most likely to to fall for this particular scam. And then I'll say, okay, this lady in Omaha, Nebraska did this, this, and this. You, she's probably easy pickings. Um, and then, then they go target. So it basically helps identify easy victims for scams. Or, you know, you could feed it in like a whole bunch of government people and their social media profiles and a bunch of personal information you're able to find about them and, you know, find me a way to exploit XYZ politician. And, it, you know, it could sit, probably make some connections and see patterns that require much more computing power than what our own brains have. And yeah. so I think that identifying vulnerabilities is going to be super easy for these models when they're, if they're fed in the right data. And I think a lot of that data is publicly available on the web because, you know, a lot of people have their social media profiles open and they have multiple social media profiles and they're posting all kinds of information about themselves, pictures about themselves. I mean, if you just fed all the pictures that people post on their Instagram, you can learn so much about them. Uh, you know, like, Hey, if you, if you kidnap this guy's dog, he has a 99% probability of paying the ransom. <laughs> uh, and this is where he lives, you know, I mean, that's maybe an odd example, but like, that's where I think it could be headed. I mean, do you see, see that or? I think that's a possibility. Um, I think it's still expensive enough to have to wrangle the technology that, um, you know, you have to be, you have to be really dedicated to, you know, pursuing whatever attack, right. To get a result that I think is dramatically more impactful. Um, but if it's the same old crime, but done more efficiently, you know, the bad impact of that really stacks up. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's probably where I would say it has the first impact is same old scams, done faster, done better, you know, to more effect, right? I mean, they're still evil. Um, that's that's where I would expect it to show up first. Um, well, there's always being a weird animal. one scam, which is steal money. Yeah, well, yeah. There's only one scam. It's one big, yeah. It's one big effort to steal money. One, yeah. It always Um, comes down to how do I steal money? And I think, you know, I think that definitely is happening, and it's going to continue to happen. Um, The use of AI to do something that could never be done before, you know, on a scale that could never be done before, you know. I guess I'm. I'm not as scared about that. I think that, you know, state sponsored, you know, evil projects like that already have the wherewithal. Um, it'll just make them a little bit easier for them. Well, yeah, the state sponsored stuff is, you know, 
pretty critical because they do have the money and the talent to do it. Like, uh, I won't name any names because I don't want to get shot down in an airplane. But yeah, uh, exactly. let's take let's take one of let's take one of these countries that we know does this kind of stuff, and it's like, okay, well now they can, you know, they have the resources to to build a crawler that goes and indexes all the content on the web and all the images and everything and feed it in to a system and find ways to exploit their enemies. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure that that's happening right now. And I'm sure the U S is doing it too. Uh, yeah. It's crazy not to, because they say that cyber warfare is the next, you know, war frontier is, you know, how do we take down the satellites and electrical grid of the enemy or, you know, things like that. Yeah. I mean, while that warfare is already underway with respect to sort of, looking for the weak spots in social fabric, right? Figuring out where you can pull and rip on it a little and cause some damage. Um, but hard infrastructure, you know, like the grid, I think that's probably a pretty good metaphor to use, right? If you want to make a grid hard to destroy, you need to distribute it. And the more distributed it is, the smaller the little subgrids of subgrids of subgrids, um, it's much more difficult to blow the whole thing up. So you need to you need to tokenize the infrastructure, and you, and you need to put it in the hands like for security for your own personal information, right? If you can, if you take control over it, and you harden your own data, and then you get a hundred million other people in America to harden their own data, that makes things pretty tough on the bad guys. So, so you think that individuals should be reducing their digital footprints so that there's less information out there for those bad guys to get? Partly, or at the very least, you know, making the pieces harder to tie together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that starts by not having everything out in the open. It does. And, you know, it's hard for me to relate to that because I never, I never dove in. I never got excited about social media. I never was a heavy user of any of it. Um, it felt like it would take a lot of time and, and it felt odd to me to communicate with more than a single person at a time. <laughs> yeah, I, what I have to say to you it's fundamentally different from what I might say to another good friend, even if you and the other friend are somewhat similar, right? Technology, uh, people who are, you know, interested in X, Y, and Z, it's like, but you're still so different. And I don't have the same thing to say to any two people. Yeah. Well, I, I feel the same way, but there's a lot of people that just want to broadcast a, a generic version of their life out to everyone on Instagram with photos. Yeah. And, and it's out there and I, I get that it's it's become a form of, I don't know, communication. It's become a form of, you know, making income. But I, I don't know. I, I never understood the real value outside of running a business that required that kind of connection or marketing or doing something like journalism or, you know, where you're actually in the, I don't know, media business. Do you 
share the concerns that Elon Musk and Bill Gates and these other people that signed that big open letter about the dangers of AI being existential and maybe even more dangerous than nuclear weapons. Do you share that concern? Not yet. Um, and, you know, yes, it's a powerful technology, but I'm not worried about AI, you know, becoming self-aware and then going off the rails and eliminating all the humans from the planet. Now, why are you not worried about that? Because humans are perfectly capable of doing that themselves. <laughs> and well, yeah, I'm more worried about the humans than I am about the AI. So, so you're you know. you're worried that we won't there won't be enough time for the AI to get that advanced. Um, because we'll just destroy ourselves first. I don't I don't think it's going to be like this sort of self-awareness thing or self-replication or things like that. That's the problem. The real problem is going to be somebody says, I'm going to invent this, I don't know, killing machine that has AI in it. And it's going to be, you know, really hard to defeat. And I'm going to actually create this thing in a physical embodiment, right? It's a robot or a drone or whatever. And I'm going to cut it loose. That all happened because of a human, right? It wasn't the AI that decided to do any of that. And so, well I, well, I think that's a big part of the concern is that, yeah, someone, some malicious person is going to create an AI that's designed to be destructive and it'll be so powerful that, like you said, it would be really difficult to defeat. Um, yeah. And the same thing's true of like germs and other biological weapons, right? Yeah. I mean, it's all, it's all within the realm of our current understanding of of science but um yeah the more the more we know about how that technology works the more the bad guys could potentially do something really damaging with it now if the bad guys have it and they probably don't have as much resources as the good guys are the good guys likely to be able to have an AI that's better than the evil AI that they create? Is is good AI likely to be able to defeat evil AI? Well, here's the problem with that. Even if your AI is better, when you're the good guy trying to protect a system versus a bad guy trying to destroy a system, it's, I don't know many orders of magnitude easier to destroy something than to create it or protect it. And so we build these fragile systems, right? Um, like 9-11, the aviation system, you know, it was a very good system. And yet it had these fragilities in it that allowed, you know, what happened on 9-11 to happen. And so any complex system like that you have to be aware of those things and how they might be exploited. Super hard to do all that, you know, and protect against every vulnerability. So it's it's a it's a asymmetric game. I know there's a lot of theory around that, but um, they don't have to be as good. <laughs> they just have to be right. good enough. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you're uh, less concerned about the existential crisis with AI than a lot of people are. Yeah. I mean, look, either way, we should probably 
relax and enjoy ourselves, right? If it's, if we're doomed, we might as well enjoy it. Um, if we're not, then, then fine. Well, I think the perspective is more that like, well, we will be doomed unless we do something about it. And so they're trying to you know, motivate everyone to put some guardrails in place. But the problem with the guardrails is that they only the people that uh, are rule followers are going to adhere to the guidelines and the bad guys aren't anyway. So you can pass some international treaty where we all agree that we're going to have guardrails for AI, but if someone doesn't want to participate in that treaty, they can just go in their basement and spin up 10,000 AWS servers and make an evil AI that circumvents all that. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I do think it's it's a good idea to think it through. There's no doubt about that. So in that sense, I do agree. Um, but I don't think we're at the point where AI is going to go off on its own and do something uh, really dangerous. But um, no, no denying the power is there. It's something to, you know, at least do something to try to keep it out of the hands of, you know, the worst players. Yeah. So, so you don't think AI is going to go rogue on its own, at least not. I mean, and, and I don't think anyone thinks that even ChatGPT has that capability, but when you think about the exponential growth uh, in the the abilities of these technologies, just where it is now from where it was 10 years ago versus 20 versus 40, and you fast forward another 10, 20 years, it could be like a billion times more powerful than it is now. And in that case, how do you know, or what gives you, what gives you confidence that something that's that powerful might not go rogue well um nothing i mean it could happen um i guess you know if i'm if i'm worried about you know the big risks it just feels to me again like the the human guided misuse of ai is way more urgent and near term and let's do first things first that's what it feels like um and things are getting more powerful but there's some there are some walls that are being hit or almost hit so data is one um if the thinking uh you know that i'm hearing is true which is at some point size isn't really the big determining factor for the capability of these large models um, so it's not more neurons. It's not more connections. Um, it's nothing about the architecture at all. It's more about the data and, right. you know, how big is it? How varied is it? How rich is it? How clean is it? All those things. Then the quest for more data is, is really where the battle is won. But I don't know. I saw an analysis that looked like we've actually already chewed up a pretty good fraction of the of the data that would be that would add value to these models. So where are we going to get more data? And then you get into these scenarios where you know the AI is actually producing a bunch of data. Now yeah, that's what I was now you have an AI consuming the data that it produces. You get this snake eating its own tail, and then you end up with degradation. So then you lose power and you lose capability. Um, 
But would it be degradation if the AI was creating, was just making new discoveries, like new discovering, you know, deeper physical laws and things like that and doing its own science? You have to I tell mean, the difference. That That's the tricky part. And, and so, yeah, learning to do science, for example. All right. That's a great idea. You can only do so much science that's not actually got a physical hand in the world, right? Um, and so, I don't know. I've, I've been giving it a lot of thought, that that aspect of it. It's like, how much of intelligence is about language? If all you had was language and you were just like a brain in a jar, um, how far can you get with that? And, you know, you've got representations like language and numbers and, um, you know, like you said, art music those are sort of varying representations of something um information right and so how far can you get with that without actually having a physical hand in the world be able to manipulate real you know atoms i don't know i mean it but it, it could definitely have uh it could eventually have a a, a physical presence i mean it could and maybe that's maybe that's an important piece of it i don't know but so it's so now you've got something with a physical presence that can manufacture more of itself and can learn from uh, the science that it does yeah so that kind of is a um an accelerant and maybe you can make big progress but hey you know there's an upside to that too you know you can solve some of these things like various diseases we've been interested in for a long time or longevity or energy, you know, things that are really significant problems that we're facing. Maybe we can do something good with respect to those. And, you know, the, the interesting thing is I think Everybody, everybody seems to either go to one extreme or the other. Like, you know, the AI is going to save us. It's going to solve these problems. So it could be a real big positive. Or AI is going to get self-aware and eliminate us from the planet. But, you know, what we don't talk about is kind of the middle ground, which is probably where it's all going anyway, right? The middle is always yeah. where things go. And we have to, I think we have to ask, questions that really are relevant like what impact is this going to have on what we do you know do we still send kids to school and train them to do certain jobs or do we rethink that and are we prepared for a world where we don't need to work as much and if we are how do we how do we run a society like that in a good way so that you know, people can do whatever it is we want them to do. Maybe we want them to explore and discover and make art, right? Whatever it is. Um, we need to think about that because if we don't think about that, we're going to end up with a bunch of ill effects with AI that's basically being used for good, right? Or we're trying, you know, no rogue robots trying to eliminate us, but we still have these massive problems and that feels more relevant. And more likely, and we ought to give that, you know, a little bit of thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think about that too, because you're right, you know, at some point, all the jobs are going to be able to be done by robots if we want them to. I think there's going to be fierce resistance to that, and it's going to, 
yeah, it's going to take a while because there's a lot of people that don't want to give up their jobs, especially because there's not an economic model for them to make a living. You know, there's going to have to be some sort of universal basic income or not even a basic income, just like a unit or, or maybe money even ceases to be relevant. And see, these are, those are such big changes, right? And I mean, we're not even wired for that. We're wired for scarcity, like because we're, we're we're primates. All animals are wired wired for limited resources. And if all of a sudden we didn't have limited resources, could we even handle that? Uh, that's a great question. Yeah, there's all there's layer upon layer of things that we're wired for that we need to understand and figure out how to move on from there. That these things could change. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. And I think the first layer is these things like. Jobs are not going to be what we thought they were. <laughs> what do we do about that? And how do we how do we deal with that without creating a bunch of people on the sideline doing nothing? Because that's never a good thing. <laughs> so, yeah, and, it, and it's going to be imbalanced too. Like the the rich countries are going to get there first, and then the poorer countries are still going to probably have a lot of manual work and then how do you have a world where you got all these people that don't need to work and, and they have everything, but then there's all these other countries that don't have the resources to have that kind of quality of life. So you might have a hybrid for a while where you've got a, a capitalist society. And I don't know what you want to call this new one. It's something, you know, Neo society. It's something. That, <laughs> yeah. it is. I'm I'm a big proponent of, trying to keep things simple. Um, let's figure out what we really care about, you know? And I've got my list of things. Um, I'd like it to be the case that I can, I got a pretty good range of things to choose from that I might want to do today. <laughs> and I'm free to do those things. And I would like it so that not only do I not have to worry about like, am I surviving? Do I have, you know, food, water, and shelter, but does humanity have that? Because I don't need to live in a world where it's constant battle to keep, you know, to keep some degree of fairness. Um, so the list of things we'd like to have, we ought to, we ought to get straight on that and keep it simple. And then think about, well, what is, what is this change to jobs going to do to that? And Try and aim it at least in the roughly the right direction. Nobody's going to be able to sit down and like put pencil to paper and come up with a complete solution here. It's just not that kind of problem. But directional would be good, and not heading in absolutely the opposite direction that we should be headed would be good. Because turning around is hard. Yeah, and it's and everyone has a a, a different form of values. You know, different values. Some people don't want this change to happen. They're fine with, you know, a bunch of manual work and people have to earn their salt and whatever. Uh, and they don't want a world where people don't have to work or they're worried that if people don't work, that they're going to go crazy or like maybe people need adversity or they, yeah. you know, they get unhappy or, you know, so there's, there's all these unknowns and then you've got different political ideologies about how to address these issues. Yeah. Those yeah, are all valid concerns. Yeah. Yeah. 
the current system is set up for, yeah, it's not set up for a bunch of people that don't have to work. That's right. So work is important. Yeah. I think it is to, to humans in general, to have a purpose. Um, I guess the thing that worries me the most about that sort of this, this line of the conversation is, you know, it shouldn't be a, a political or tribal type of answer. That, that that's a constraint we don't need right now. We need to just think from first principles. And, you know, to the degree that that is not possible, we're in pretty bad shape. Because <laughs> it's, it's not going to be it's, an easy problem. It's definitely, I mean, it's, it's physically possible. The laws of physics allow for it. <laughs> uh, it doesn't seem to be trending in that direction with you know the division that's that we've got right now where we can't even we can't even have the conversation i mean there's just both sides are just not communicating right now they're just talking oh. past each other yeah. not respecting each other why um, the reason yeah. for it is the reason for it is at once obvious and at once just mysterious right um there are forces at play many of them related to money or power that motivate a certain very small fraction of the population to create and stoke up these kinds of divisions. Now, it's just like security, I think, right? If each person takes personal responsibility for their own hardening to this manipulation, right? Getting played, getting spun up, getting enraged. If you can harden yourself against that as an individual, right? Individual responsibility, then it's harder for those guys to succeed. Um, same with security, right? Take advantage of the tools that are out there and harden yourself. Makes it, if everybody did that or a good fraction of everybody, all of a sudden it gets real hard. Um, then I think we'd be in a pretty good place. Um, and the mis the mystery to me is, you know, it feels like the kind of, um, I don't know. It's a, it's like a, a charade, right? It's like everybody's pretending. And if you just kind of look at each other and, you know, the guys in Kansas stopped by New York city and New York city guys went over to, you know, the middle of Montana, you would find people that you really like and lots of them. And you'd be like, you know what? I really respect that. And I actually like this place. And I like these people. Um, and so this, there's this mystery of like, well, how does this persist? <laughs> Why isn't anybody figuring this out? Um, and then there's the obvious thing that it's to the benefit of some to keep, keep it going. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's like this very complicated web of different things contributing to the division you know it's the social media algorithms they're kind of creating echo chambers there's the media that's tr trying to stay alive by competing for clicks with the most sensationalist possible things that they can say and write and you know they're just trying to make a living but in order to make a living they have to create clickbait and that clickbait has to stoke anger and fear yeah. And, and, uh, and 
the division, that drama, uh, is what stokes that. And that's why yeah, you, you, you have to create an enemy in order to, you know, entertain the people. And enemies so, give enemies give purpose and clear yeah. purpose. But it's a yeah. lazy, it's a lazy sourced purpose. It's you know, the kind of thing you do when you don't feel like getting up in the morning and working for something. And the more we can take responsibility, get up in the morning and say, I'm going to find purpose. And it's not going to be what somebody told me it was. <laughs> I'm going to figure it out myself. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of people that want to do that. And I think there's a lot of people that just aren't wired for that. You know, I mean, we're. Yeah. I mean, primates I think, are, are social hierarchies. And there's. There's a lot of truth levels. to that. Um, but I do think. um it, it's a it's a super interesting question, and it does relate to AI in some ways, right? We're all connected. You can think of us all as this big interconnected network, and we behave in ways as a collection that, you know, are very different from how we behave as individuals or small groups. And I don't know. You've seen these these sort of projects where they'll bring together you know, red state and blue state people and sit them down in a room and they end up forming friendships and they operate fine. It's like, well, small numbers works just fine. Yeah. Make that hundred million people on each team. And all of a sudden it gets harder. People need purpose. And I think social media in particular has changed the way that people source that and determine the purpose. Um, and we didn't think that through. That's not AI, right? It's just social media. Now there's a hell of a lot of AI behind it. Believe me, some of the biggest, baddest models, it's no surprise that it's these guys who have all the data about all the consumers who have the most powerful AI. They have it to use it. <laughs> and they're using it to get you to buy more things or stay on the platform or you know post more tweets or whatever it is. That's... That's undeniable, right? They got the biggest AI teams around and they've got all the tools and all the GPUs lined up. And um, let's use that for something else, maybe. <laughs> yeah. So uh, wrapping up here, we've, we've definitely gone through the rabbit hole. I mean, we've talked about artificial intelligence and um, philosophy you know, what is, you know, can, can a robot become conscious? You know, how do we restructure society? How do we solve the divisions that we have? Um, any, uh, well, let me ask you uh, a final topic. Are, are you optimistic about the future? And why or why not? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I am. I think that um, the future generally, it never comes out as bad as as we think it might be. Um, there's usually some surprises to the upside. And, you know, if you look at, you know, roll the tape backwards, look at what people were saying in the 70s or in the 60s, 70s, 80s, right, about the things that could go wrong and the things that would go wrong. 
yeah, probably some of those things did happen, but so did a bunch of other things that seem, you know, really interesting and good. And in general, the trend has been positive, less poverty, um, more education. But you can't take your eye off the ball, right? Big disasters do happen. Um, it's possible for a big chunk of humanity to be, you know, taken out. And, you know, that's not a good time. But I don't know. I think it doesn't hurt to be optimistic. Might as well. Um, it's the best way to kind of push things forward, I think. Um, you can't just focus on defending yourself. You have to focus on building something good. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I feel the same way. I'm very optimistic. I think I, I get more optimistic the further back I look in history mm -hmm. and how crappy life was back then compared to it is now. And how even back then everyone thought that, you know, everything was going to shit, you know? And so uh, even in the 1960s, you know, everyone was like, thought that the world was going to be destroyed by now by nuclear bombs. And, you know, we've, for the most part, not even really had a credible threat of that. And yeah. now I, we've got all this medicine that's, you know, saving lives that even in the 60s and 70s didn't exist. Um so when I, you know, you look over a hundred year time horizon, I, I, I think a hundred years from now, things are going to be amazing. We have a whole new set of problems that, uh, of the day that are going to seem existential at that time. But when you look back a hundred years to today, they're going to feel like we were living like barbarians. Mm -hmm. I agree with that point of view. I, I think, I think that's right on. Cool. Well, uh, it was great to have you, Steve Biafor. Uh, and um, I'm looking forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for having me. Journey through the rabbit hole with us. Don't miss out. Like, subscribe, and hit that notification bell.